Our reading this morning comes from Romans 10, 11 through 21. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. I've always been pretty impressed with Romans. Uh, not not be, just because it contains clear and careful explanation of Christian doctrine and theology, which it does, but also because the divine inspiration of its authorship seems so clear to me when it, it so effectively predicts the human response to what we read here. And so in chapter 9, we saw after expressing in the clearest terms that God chose to love Jacob and rejected Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, it predicts and answers the questions regarding maybe there's injustice on God's part, by no means. And then after revealing a core characteristic of God's character, Romans 9.18, that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, Paul predicts the natural and rebellious response, Romans 9.19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Our passage this morning is yet another masterful prediction of our fallen response. Incredible insight into human psyche on display. It, it, it follows a, a solid couple of chapters which focuses intensely on the sovereignty of God in salvation, showing mercy to whomever he wills and saving them to the full, Romans 8.30, so that those he chose to be the beneficiaries of his covenants and predestined that they would be conformed to the image of Christ would also be effectively called, justified, and glorified, an unbreakable chain of God's will in saving some. And following this emphasis, Romans again predicts the human response of apathetic passivity in light of God's control over all things. If God is saving whomever he wills, then we have no responsibility or necessity for action, right? 
false. But this is, this is the predicted outcome of fallen humans hearing about God's sovereignty, hearing about his total control in all things. Then we're like, well, well, let's sit back and wait to see what happens. There's, Christianity is not fatalism. There is still much to be said here about human responsibility and future outcomes which rely in part on our obedience. It is the declared sovereign will of God that those God is saving for himself will come to faith and experience that salvation through the preaching of the gospel. So Romans 10 is the effective refutation of fatalism. While at the same time, continues the theme of God's sovereign control in salvation. It teaches that the final outcome is secure and ultimately under the control of God. And yet believers bear individual and corporate responsibility, which is necessary for the purposes of God to be fulfilled. God commands and will cause his people to be obedient in mission and evangelism. Now, it's not actually a part of our passage this morning, but I want to remind you that Paul has already handled prayer in much the same way as he does the proclamation of the gospel here. In a letter saturated with statements about God's sovereign control, the necessity of prayer is in no way diminished. The omnipotent power of God is not a reason to neglect prayer, but motivation to pray all the more. So Paul opens the letter, Romans 1, 9 to 10, by making them aware that they are always in his ceaseless prayers to God. And then in chapter 8, 26, he expresses both the necessity of prayer as well as the confidence we can have that if we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So we have both parts of that, right? That the responsibility as we ought to pray as we ought, and yet should we fail to pray as we ought, God himself offers prayers on our behalf. So Romans 10 then begins with Paul's announcement that his own personal response to the hardened hearts of his countrymen is prayer to God that they may be saved. Now, I didn't write anything here, but I want you to to see this. The response to his knowledge that God has hardened some is not to say, oh, well, they're hardened to hell with them, quite literally, but to say, God, save them. He begins to pray for those whose hearts have been hardened. I want you to see this. And one of his final statements, then before the closing of the letter, is Romans 15, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So he he appeals to them, pray, pray with me, pray for me. This is a necessity. Christianity is not fatalism. And the sovereign rule and control of God over all things can never be an excuse to walk in disobedience. You know, what what foolishness says, look, God is very powerful and accomplishes all that he has purposed, so, so let's ignore what he's commanded us to do. 
that's, that's stupid. Or, or who asks, what foolishness ask? what point is there to speaking with God and enjoying relationship with him in prayer if he's going to do whatever he wants? It just makes no sense. So also it is exceedingly foolish to say in our hearts that there is no necessity for sharing the good news of the gospel because God will save whomever he wills. For God has declared his purpose and will that it is through the obedience of his people, their faithful testimony, that he will call people to himself and grant them faith. This should be the motivating factor, church, for our bearing faithful witness. God has already ordained. He has set forth his will. He has written it in his word that he is saving some through our witness through the testimony about Jesus Christ. The logical framework of our passage this morning begins in verse 11, which we looked at very briefly last week, the quotation from the prophet Joel, chapter 2 and verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. At first brush, to call upon the name of the Lord is fairly simple. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 116.4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. This is to call upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. But to call upon the name of the Lord is also a common Old Testament phrase which describes right worship of God. To genuinely call upon the name of the Lord is more than just to say, God help us, or to toss out Jesus' name outside of relationship with him. To call upon the name of the Lord requires knowledge about God, to know which Lord one is calling upon, and the knowledge of how exactly to go about the calling. For these things... Abraham and his descendants were uniquely equipped because God had revealed to them sufficient knowledge of his character and promises that they could call upon him alone and call upon him, worship him as he requires. These things had been graciously provided to God's chosen people to know his character and promises so they could know who they were calling upon. Romans 10, 14 to 15, lays out the conditions which are necessary for people to genuinely call on the name of the Lord. How then will they call on him who, whom they have not believed? Do you see what, see what it's saying here? When we say anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, who can call upon the name of the Lord? Anyone? Can anyone just call upon the name of the Lord and, and cry out, you know, save me and, and be saved. No, no, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how were they to hear without someone preaching? And how were they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, there's a series of steps required for someone to call upon the name of the Lord. And what has to happen for someone to do that? Calling on the Lord for salvation requires believing in him. One does not just cry out to the land and sky for help, a, a generic call to the heavens. Help me, Tom Cruise. One, one cannot 
only genuinely call on the one that they believe in, which is to entrust themselves to God's character and promises. That wasn't in my notes. It just came to my head. We can't call on someone just like randomly throwing out names and expect that God is, is saving. We must believe in the one in whom we are calling on, know what we are calling for. No one can genuinely call on one that they have not believed in, which is to entrust themselves to God's character and promises. To believe God in this way requires being made aware. They must hear and to hear requires that someone brings the message. And of course, all of this requires someone be sent with the message. Now, not every Christian is responsible to go to the mission field. And not every Christian is responsible and called to be a preacher or teacher. But the body of Christ, all of us, have the responsibility to send preachers and teachers and missionaries both locally and into the world. This is our commission. We share this responsibility, this fellowship, which means that we bear up under the same burden. This is our call and commission as a church. As we say here at Rose City, we are in partnership for gospel proclamation. Millions, if not Billions of people in this world have never heard the word about Jesus Christ. They've never heard the report about him. In fact, every day in human history, a record is broken. More people died today without hearing the name of Jesus Christ. And tomorrow will break today's record. There is a responsibility and a necessity under the sovereign will of God to preach the gospel and to send preachers. It is defiant insubordination to say that we will just trust God to save whomever he wills. He has already established that he will do it through our obedience. Part of Paul's motivation in writing to the, church, the Roman churches is because he hopes to use Rome as a launching place for a missionary journey to Spain. Later, Paul will express the hope that they will partner with him in proclaiming the gospel where it had not yet been heard. He writes in chapter 15, 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. And in verse 28, I will leave for Spain by way of you. At the end of verse 15, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, this quotation from the prophet Isaiah serves two functions. First, it provides scriptural confirmation of the necessary role of preaching in bringing people to salvation. Preaching in this context doesn't mean a sermon, but to publish, to proclaim, to make known. And then the use of the word feet underscores the sending and going, the trips they would actually take, the walking they would have to do to proclaim the message of good news to those who had not yet heard it. 
how in his quotation, Paul altered the Old Testament text from the singular him, him who preaches good news, to the plural those, to stress that the prophecy from Isaiah has been fulfilled. The messengers have been sent out. The good news is being preached. The return from exile is a reality. And thus God's end time salvation is now available to both Jews and Gentiles. It's for the same reason that his quotation eliminates the reference to the mountains, which actually described the land of Israel geographically. So he eliminates the reference to mountains so that it's not limiting the good news to Israel. Though the requirement for the gospel to be heard from preachers who have been sent is true generally, Paul's focus is still on the question introduced at the beginning of chapter 9 as to why most Jews had not believed the gospel. And so the second function of the Isaiah quotation is to say that these last conditions listed by Paul for preachers to be sent and heard have already been met for the residents of Israel. God has sent preachers. Access to the gospel is needed for salvation. That much is clear. But that is not and has never been Israel's problem. Verse 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, now these verses almost seem out of order in the logical sequence of Paul's argument, but this is because verse 16 is still appealing to the testimony of Isaiah, who basically preached the gospel, shared the message, gave the warnings to to God's people, and then said, like, is there anyone who? Who's who's heard? Who's listened? Nobody? He, He felt like he was preaching to a wall when he was talking to God's people. The final statement regarding the necessity of hearing the gospel excludes the idea that salvation can be obtained apart from hearing the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, people want to think, you know, God must be doing plan B because we Christians aren't doing plan A. Not so. God has ordained how he is bringing people to faith. And it is through our obedience. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Saving faith is not something that springs up from within us. But it is something that is given by God. In part through hearing the report about Jesus Christ. This message about Jesus centers on Jesus the Messiah and his saving work on the cross and the truth that he is now the exalted Lord who saves both Jews and Gentiles. Thus, the saving proclamation of the gospel always involves the proclamation of Jesus as Lord who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. This is in the, the last portion of Romans that we just looked at, that We confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. This is the center core of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done. This is what it means by the word of Christ. It's not to say Christ's words, but the word about Christ, the report, the testimony about Jesus. But if the first point of our passage is the necessity of hearing the gospel for personal salvation 
the necessity of, of gospel preaching. The second point is that hearing the gospel is insufficient for salvation in and of itself. While hearing the gospel is a necessary condition for salvation, it is not a sufficient condition. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Has Israel failed to respond to the gospel because they had not heard it? Certainly not. As Paul makes clear by quoting Psalm, or Psalm 19 verse 4, the message of the gospel has been proclaimed far and wide. In fact, the, the psalm is actually originally a reference to the glory of creation. That everyone on the whole earth sees who God is and, and his divinity through the things that he has made. And so the, the initial quote is about everyone in the world, of course, sees the majesty and wonder of creation and, and should recognize God for who he is. Paul uses the same passage to speak about the, the proclamation of the gospel to talk about how widespread the message of the gospel already was in his day. The purpose is, is not to say that all missionary work has been accomplished. It's still taking place today, right? But we, we read just a couple of passages, or just, just a moment ago, we read a couple of passages which demonstrate that Paul still intended to evangelize Spain. But that the mission has now been extended to include Gentiles with the gospel message, which is for all people. This is what he's saying. It's, it's now going worldwide. This thing's going global. Even in Paul's day, the gospel was reaching the edges of the known world and the, to the fringes of the Roman Empire. So Paul isn't here claiming that every single Israelite has heard the good news, only that it was common knowledge at this point. And yet, in general, the Jews still rejected the message. So the, the apostles and other missionaries had been sent. They had preached. The Jews has, had heard Perhaps they did not understand. Romans 10, 19 to 21. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So, in general, Israel certainly knew the gospel, but did they understand it? Paul introduces two witnesses to prove Israel's knowledge, that they knew and understood. Both Moses and Isaiah testify about Israel. The first quotation is from Deuteronomy 32.21. And it's part of Moses' song about Israel. He sings this song which rehearses the history of God's gracious acts on Israel's behalf and Israel's stubborn and sinful response to those acts. Do you imagine if someone started writing worship music like this? We sang the first verse. It's all about how great God is and how, how faithful and loving he's been to us. And verse 2, we're the worst we keep messing up. We're so unfaithful. And then verse 3 is, and God is so awesome. Isn't it fantastic how great God is? And then verse 4 is like, but, you know, oh man, how does he even put up with us? You know, this is Moses' song to Israel. 
God's gracious acts and Israel's stubborn and sinful response. And then in his song, he prophesies about what would happen in the coming days. Where, because Israel had made God jealous with idols, you know, can you imagine? He's singing this song about God's great gifts to them and his faithfulness. And then verse 2 is Israel's idol worship. And Israel had made God jealous with idols, he says. So God, in the future, will make them jealous by a nation that did not have his law. A nation that was not a nation. And this concept of God making Israel jealous by saving people who were formerly not his people is, uh, becomes foundational for Paul's mission strategy. Paul's missionary strategy, he believed that his successful Gentile mission will provoke Israel's jealousy and, and then motivate them to conversion. This is something he says a couple of different times, and it's something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. This is, this is why Paul believed it would happen this way. Paul believed it would happen this way because Isaiah predicted it. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, this is what's going to happen. You made God jealous with your idols, he's going to make you jealous by saving others who were not once called his people. The second witness introduced is once again the prophet Isaiah. Remember, these chapters are by far the densest usage of the Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament. Paul has to show that this is what the Bible says as he preaches. And so he first cites Isaiah 65, 1 in verse 20, where a nation not seeking or asking for God found him, and this is exactly what Paul's already said is happening with the Gentile or non-Jewish nations in Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So Isaiah says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me, which which." comes after uh, Romans 3 where, where Paul says that no one seeks for God. Right? No one seeks for God. So God will be found by those who did not seek him. And this too was prophesied in the Old Testament. The meaning of this second quotation from Isaiah 65 is the same as the first. Israel knew from the Old Testament scriptures that they would sin and fall away from God. This had already been predicted many times in the prophets. And they, they knew from what the pro- God had told the prophets all the way through that the Gentiles would inherit all the blessings of the people of God. Both quotations are regarding the full inclusion of the Gentiles grafted into Israel, becoming the people of God with faithful Jews. And Paul then continues his quotation with the next verse, Isaiah 65, 2 and verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, the disbelief of the Jews was no surprise to God. He had already ordained that Israel would be provoked to jealousy by the inclusion of the Gentiles. He had already, hundreds if not thousands of years ago, already announced his plan that most of Israel would not respond positively to the gospel which Paul preached. 
We can look at the Old Testament and see that this is the case. We know, even, even from a modern perspective, we know this Old Testament was written far before Paul's day. And yet God had predicted that the Israelites would not respond positively in general. And in the Pauline worldview, which is to say the Christian worldview, what the scriptures prophesy must surely come to pass. Because God is true to his word. He is no liar. And thus the predictions of scripture contain the unalterable purposes of God. But the, the concept of divine sovereignty, that God had already planned this thousands, before any of them were born, before their grandparents were born, God had already said, and I'm going to harden this people so that they reject this gospel, and then I'm going to make them jealous by saving many Gentiles. God had already planned this. You have to see, this is way before they are born, before they had done anything good or bad, but so that God would be glorified. But this, this concept of divine sovereignty in no way diminishes the reality of human responsibility and the seriousness of human choices and human freedom. All of Romans 9 to 11 emphasizes that Israel should believe and is held responsible for not doing so. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are not played off against each other so that one nullifies the other. Instead, human responsibility is always subordinated to the sovereignty of God without ever emptying human choices of their authenticity of validity. This, this word, responsibility, is composed of two words, ability and response. Responsibility involves an ability to respond. Now, as we looked at last week, Paul does prove from the Old Testament scriptures that no one seeks for God, but because of our moral corruption. The, the universal offer of the gospel is genuine. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul uses this imagery of God with his palms open, beseeching people, exhorting them, inviting them, disciplining them, telling them to come to him. And he stands there, not just for a second, not just for a moment, but all day long. The reason why people do not respond to the invitation is not because God fails to give them a genuine invitation, but because of their disobedience and obstinacy. It is precisely because man is in a state of rebellion that he will never respond to the gospel unless God gives him a heart transplant, eyes to see and ears to hear. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, or put it this way, I guess now. Anyone can be saved if he wants to be saved. But therein lies the problem. Anyone can be saved if he wants to be saved. But that's, that's the problem. At the beginning of these verses, Paul laid out the conditions necessary for someone to call on the Lord and be saved. He then makes clear that every condition except one has been met already for his fellow Israelites. The preachers have been sent. The gospel has been preached. Indeed, the word of Christ has been heard throughout the known world. In these final verses, we can see that in addition to the gospel message being heard, it has also, at least to some extent, been understood. What then is the missing ingredient? Faith. 
Yes, access to the gospel is needed for salvation, but that isn't Israel's problem. They were a disobedient and contrary people. The message about God's saving righteousness is not too far off, nor is it too complex to be understood. It is rejected. And having rejected the gospel invitation, they are self-blinded and culpable for what they knew. There's a major emphasis here. In the midst of all this divine sovereignty, a major emphasis on human responsibility. Before I was ever able to make sense of what the Bible says about election and predestination and the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of humans, I just decided to believe whatever the Bible says, even if it doesn't fit together for me. And, and there was at least five years where I just like, well, I don't know how it fits together, but I just, I believe the whole Bible, so I know I believe these things and I believe these things, even if I don't know how they fit together. But one thing I came to fairly early as a foundational belief, which I think you can safely as well, is I said, I know that if I am saved, that's God's fault, not mine. I, I can confidently say that from virtually every book of the Bible. I know that I didn't save myself. That was my experience as a convert. I had no responsibility in saving myself. And I could confidently tell you, secondly, that if I go to hell... That's my fault. I did that. That was my responsibility. And that, those things are true. It's not God's fault if we are damned. And it's not our fault if we are saved. This is, this is the biblical doctrine of, of unconditional election in, in its simplicity. And, and I don't think any Christian would deny these things. It's not my fault if I'm saved. And it's not God's fault if I am judged. This is what's being said here. Israel had received every opportunity. They had rejected the genuine invitation from God. They are self-blinded, culpable for what they knew, and they have ran themselves headlong into judgment. Now coming back to verse 16, surprisingly, Paul characterizes Israel's reaction to the gospel, this rejection of the gospel, not as unbelief, which we would normally say, but as disobedience. Verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now, now see this, Paul has, from the very beginning of Romans, linked faith and obedience in, in verse, or chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about the obedience of faith. Again, at the end of the book, he talks about bringing Gentiles to the obedience of faith. And Paul's especially concerned in this context to show that Israel's situation is the result not simply of a relatively passive unbelief. It is not as though God is judging people because they just passively don't believe yet. They haven't been convinced. They haven't seen the evidence. That is not what the judgment of God is coming upon. It's, it's not just this relatively passive unbelief, but a definite and culpable refusal to respond to God's gracious initiative. Just as the Song of Moses outlines this lovely love and, and fellowship and gentleness and faithfulness of God and, and then the rejection of God's people, this is my story. 
And this is your story. This is the song we should sing of God's faithfulness and our rejection of his love and our rejection of his faithfulness. It's not a passive unbelief where we just haven't heard and and been convinced yet, but we have rejected the truth, blinded our own eyes, and we are culpable for what we knew. Disobedience and willful unbelief are two sides of the same coin. This is not, as I said, the kind of unbelief that's just passive. It's not just that I don't know yet. You know, sometimes I will call her something to my daughters, give them some instruction, and then I'll be right ticked when one of them doesn't do it. And they're like, I didn't hear. What did you say? I didn't hear the message. I'm like, sure you didn't. But, but, if, but, I, but then I catch myself. I'm like, I'm not going to come down on a kid who didn't hear my message. This is not the kind of unbelief we're talking about. God's not mad at us that we didn't hear the message. We are culpable because we are willfully unbelieving and choosing disobedience. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? See, this this connection, they're two sides of the same coin. Willful disbelief and disobedience. And so also, there is an inseparable relationship between faith and obedience. A relationship noted with this repeated phrase, the obedience of faith or obedience that flows from faith in Romans 1.5 and 16.26. Because in scripture, faith is not merely verbal assent, but also entails a wholehearted commitment to God. Faith is where our allegiance lies with God. And as we think about the terrible way that Israel, God's chosen old covenant people, related to him throughout their history, we dare not fail to look at our own lives. God has chosen new covenant people who are also prone to wander from devotion to him. Allow idols of covetousness in our lives. And and we are prone to ignoring the clear and powerful warnings in God's word. For some of us here, God is holding out his hands to us all day long, inviting us to repent. Inviting us to repent of our willful disbelief. Will we respond appropriately or will we too be disobedient and contrary people? It's also important to consider the very real possibility that while you may have a passion and a zeal for God, it might not be born out of understanding the grace alone gospel we see so clearly communicated in Romans. Perhaps you are calling out, but lack the knowledge of God and his promises that would make that a saving venture. It is here we must fully rely on the truth and clarity of God's word. That what we need to call upon the Lord is found here in his gracious self-revelation to us. The invitation is there, the door is open, and yet in ourselves we lack the necessary unction or motivation to move through it. So I want to leave us with Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 9, which say so much of this so briefly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'll leave you with the last line of Romans 15. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you, by your spirit, would give us new hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear. That we would know you and call upon you. Lord, if there are any here or listening who have not yet known you sufficiently, they're calling out to the land and sea and sky and heavens, but don't know you to call upon you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself in majesty and grace and power so that we may call upon you rightly. Lord, we also this morning need to repent for we have failed in our obedience whether it is because we lack the courage and are afraid and shy back from obeying and sharing faithful witness, or whether it is because we have become complacent and apathetic in our so-called trust for you. Lord, we repent for where we have failed, where we have sinned. Lord, we ask that you would change our hearts, grant us pure hearts which follow hard after you and obey your commands. For this is the work of your spirit, even as we strive to obey. Do this in us for the glory of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.